G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. Today on the show, we're getting deep, deep, man, deep into creation with a look at the creatures of the sea and the sky. And we'll find that nothing is as it teems. Get it? Teams? Because we're talking about swarming things and teams sounds like seams. And there was a great pun there. But, you know, that was a real dad joke, and I'm not even a dad, so I'll leave that up to you, Tim. Uh, yeah. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> Maybe I should let you write the jokes. Um, so <laughs> we're, we're in day five this time, and uh, as we noted earlier, that means that we're still in the second half of creation week, and that means God is filling up the spaces he created in the first half of the week. Correlating to day two, which was all about the sky and the waters, the fifth day is going to give us the inhabitants of those places, the fish and birds. This is a beautifully crafted piece of the text. I mean, I love the whole chapter, but in particular, this is just full of delicious subtlety and nuance, and it's fascinated scholars and mystics alike for thousands of years. Today, we're going to give it a little scratch and see what we find under the surface. So here's the text from the NIV, and it's Genesis 1, 20 to 23. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, I've already spoken many times about the passive phrasing that God uses in this chapter, so we won't continue to retread that ground. Suffice to say that this act of creation is not any more concrete or materialistic than any other. God is permitting and directing the course of nature here, and it is a nature that he, by his own nature, cannot but have instigated materially, even if Genesis 1 does not tell us that. Scripture is functional, and function is all that matters here, not cells, genetics, biology. Another thing I'm not going over again is the NIV's choice of the word vault here in verse 20. And I was annoyed enough last time when we, when we had to read Fermoont. Uh, we talked about it before in our Ferment episode, and all I'm going to say here is that the NIV translators were so keen to make the sky hard that they turned the dome upside down to fit it in the text, and now they've got people practically banging their heads on the ceiling so that the birds can be flying on the surface. It's ridiculous. For those who came in late, you need to go back and listen to those episodes on the Firmament to understand why it should be translated as Expanse. If you're listening and you're getting upset because you're a flat earther and you need that dome in the text, I... Just have one question for you. What is more important to you? Learning how to discern what the claims of the Bible are actually affirming or holding a certain worldview because it keeps you out of the mainstream and in the fringes of Christian culture where you get to feel superior and unteachable because you're so alternative. I'm suggesting that if you're serious about biblical truth, you need to honestly examine the biblical text in its own cognitive environment, not yours. With respect to the desire for truth that many flat earthers hold, you aren't taking your quest for truth far enough if you're content to camp on a worldview concocted by proponents of 19th century higher criticism, many of whom were professing atheists. Anyway, that's enough ranting about translations that put a flat earth into the text. 
Let's take some time to appreciate what this text does say. Let the water teem with living creatures. The Ma'im, the waters, the home of cosmic forces of chaos, come alive with living creatures writhing and squirming so that their very being makes the water move with them. The language here even has the quality of onomatopoeia. You know, the, the words sound like the things they describe. In Hebrew, we have sharats, sharets, or swarming with swarming things. The sound of water swishing and sloshing around comes to mind. We must always remember that the scriptures were written not to be silently read in a quiet room. They were to be read aloud to a congregation of listeners. The sound matters. In fact, the sound of words can create meaning that isn't there when you read it. That sounds blasphemous to a textual scholar, but if you're an attentive listener to the text, you're getting more out of it than the reader. I make that point in my book, but it's going to keep coming up, so I mention it again. Living creatures is an interesting phrase too. 16 times in the primeval history, 4 times in Leviticus, once in Deuteronomy and the Psalms, 13 times in Ezekiel, 18 times in Revelation. Let that distribution sink in. It comes up a few times in the Torah after that initial concentration of appearances in the primeval history. It clusters once more in Ezekiel. It should come as no surprise to students of the Revelation that we find the phrase so concentrated there. After all, Ezekiel really inspired the Apostle John. Whoa, hold on a minute there. So are you saying that Ezekiel had a hand in writing the final form in which we now have the primeval history? Did he write Genesis 1? Well, that might be a question too big for me to answer, although we did notice something similar when we talked about the Rakia. For those who came in late, we talked extensively about the firmament back in our earlier episodes, but I can say that there are others who agree that they're seeing what I'm seeing here, and that's where I'm leaving that little observation for now. Let's take a moment to appreciate the Hebrew word nefesh. It has a wide semantic range, which the context will narrow for us while still preserving a deliberate ambiguity. And so we may consider it as referring to life, soul, spirit, the self, desires or passions, or the mind. Sometimes the text means simply one of those options, like life. But other times, we get a bit more included. This is particularly interesting because these qualities that we would summarize as sentience are not the kind of qualities we generally assign to birds and fish. Our application of nefesh, as it applies to non-humans, tends to be limited to life or living, and that's it. Now, according to Kurt Cobain, it's okay to eat fish because they don't have any feelings. <laughs> You're uh, showing your 90s kid age there. So uh, what's going on here? Are they living animals? Are they like some kind of spirit beings? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's both. And when I say both, I don't mean it like doves are angels or demons are bats or fallen angels are fish. Putting a piece of fish in your mouth or eating chicken is not how you get demons. Uh, you might upset a lot of people if you eat a bat, though. Um, this is not supposed to be making equivocations and saying X equals Y. This is the text talking about two different things at the same time. And it can do that because both X and Y have similarities that mean for the purposes of communication, they can both be spoken of using common language. We did this before when we talked about the waters as the abode of spirits. Um, we did it in our last episode. So, yeah, it's, it's Voltron all over again. I like that. I like Voltron. So does this mean that animals have souls? That's why I ask the classic 
question. Do dogs go to heaven? Well, all I can commit to is that uh, this question from King Solomon in Ecclesiastes 3.21, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. Now, I appreciate that this isn't helping listeners get over their lost pets, but if it is any consolation, I'm sure that there will be animals in the new earth after Christ has restored all things. Anyway, uh, now just because we have the use of symbolic language in Scripture to describe these spiritual phenomena, that doesn't give us license to interpret the natural world around us through the same lens necessarily. And by that, I mean that if there is a demon in your house, you might say that there is a bird of prey visiting you. But if a bird flies in your window, you don't get to say that a demon is visiting you. It's just a bird, and the bird is a bird. Haven't you heard? Uh, demons are demons, but they're not birds unless we're talking in symbolic language, in which case we follow the pattern of Scripture. We might speak of demons as though they were birds, but we don't speak of birds as though they are demons. That's not how this works. Right. So demons are birds, but birds aren't demons. Gotcha. Good to know. Yeah, especially if you already have ornithophobia. <laughs> uh, we saw this earlier when we talked about where spirits live, and we said that they live in the places that mankind finds inaccessible. These are the same places now being populated in this text. So the heavens and the watery places are inhabited with living creatures, sentient, intelligent creatures that dwell where we can't and operate on levels that we can't. Notice that elsewhere God speaks and says, let there be, which is answered with, and there was, or and it was so. But here, God creates. Created is the translation of Wayibra, which is a verb form that occurs only one more time in the whole Bible. Yes, where? It's the creation of man in Genesis 1.27. In the text we've seen thus far, God is said to have made only the expanse of the heavens and the lights in them, in all other cases, God just speaks and the things he mentions comply with his will. And that term made, or the Hebrew asar, is very generic. It can refer to making something, but equally it can be translated as doing. Like doing the dishes, doing your taxes, doing time, doing the fandango. It's acting more often than making. It's doing the thing. The point is, the use of asar here isn't pointing to a necessary act of material creation. On days 2 and 5, God says, let there be, and then he does the act of creation himself. It isn't left up to the firmament to raise itself. It isn't the job of the seas and the sky to bring forth the fish and birds. These humanly inaccessible realms, whether we speak of the seen or the unseen, are direct creations of God by his express will and not as a result of natural process that God simply permits. And the same goes for the creatures that live there. This is the divine family of God. Now, you might hear that and get uncomfortable. <laughs> so it is a bit weird. What about the bad guys? Are they in God's family? What about Satan, Leviathan? Uh, we mentioned demons before. Are there demons in Genesis 1? What's going on? Well, the text alludes, as you should have probably guessed by now, to spiritual forces that function within the greater system of God's good world. Function means that they have jobs to do. If you've studied what the Bible says about the Satan figure, or you've read my work on it, you'll know that Satan, or specifically the Satan, the adversary or accuser, is not usually a name but a job title. God has jobs for all of his creatures, and they are made to do them well. 
They also have the power of choice and decision-making. But ultimately, God is in control, which means that even after they go rogue, which happens later for a lot of them, uh, they don't get out of having to do their job. So when we read that God made the great sea creatures, the Taninim, we ought not be surprised to find that this is actually a reference to primal forces of chaos, spoken of here in terms of embodied physical reality. Remember how we read that the water was teeming with living creatures and we went on to say that these creatures churned up the water? Where else have we read that in our Bible about a raging sea? Readers of Answers to Giant Questions will no doubt recall the episode on the Sea of Galilee which preceded Jesus' encounter with Legion, the demoniac. In the book, I talk about how Mark wrote his record of that event specifically to suggest that Leviathan was involved. Here's another one. What about Jonah? Chapter 1, verse 4 in the ESV. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Well, in English, the storm is on the sea, but in Hebrew, the tempest is not on the sea, it's in the sea. This ain't a sea breeze. Something is in the water. And Jonah is going to need a bigger boat. Nice Jaws reference. I'm assuming you're a Jaws fan. Oh, I love it. Yeah, Dad and I used to watch it before we went fishing the next morning in a boat half the size <laughs> of that shark. Uh, we, we knew every line in that film. I love Quint, you know, the old salty. He takes Brody and Hooper out to get the shark. He has all the best lines. And when he dies, you're not quite sure if you're glad to be rid of him or if you just witnessed the death of a hero. Uh, that, that movie is equal parts iconic and terrifying to this day. But that film probably had a lot to do with me not giving much credence to the idea that Jonah was actually swallowed by a real, literal sea creature. Anyway, getting back to the storm in the water, uh, this storm language is one of a plethora of subtle references within the book of Jonah that indicate the presence of a chaos dragon tradition which associates the great fish with the Leviathan. And of course we have Psalm 104 as well. So Psalm 104 verses 25 to 26 uh, again from the ESV, here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. And speaking of Leviathan in Job 41, verses 31 to 32, it makes the depths churn like a boiling cauldron and stirs up the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a glistening wake behind it. One would think the deep had white hair. So all of this is at work here in Genesis 1 as well. And it comes without any apparent shadow of evil attached in this text. Or does it? I'm leaving you all hanging again. I know. Don't think it's accidental. It's not. So we have the sea creatures, great and small, both physical and metaphysical. And then mid-sentence, the focus shifts to the birds. Both the fish and birds are made according to their kinds, as the NIV says, because God intends for all things that he made good to be separate from other things and prevented from unintended mixture. This maintains order and integrity in creation, and we'll see more of this distinction as we go along, which of course sets us up for what happens in Genesis 6 with the Beneha Elohim and the daughters of humans. The birds, then, are a departure from the sea creatures, and while the creation language is common to both, the birds are different because while the heavens are where they operate, the earth is where they rest and where they breed. The fish stay in the water and they need nothing else, but birds, like ourselves, look for a dry place to call their home. There's a meat 
Puppets reference for you to go with the Nirvana reference earlier. You can't have Kurt Cobain without Kurt Kirkwood. If you know what I mean, you know. Uh, I don't know, and I don't know. Um, so <laughs> I was more into Backstreet Boys. Um, so <laughs> what's going on here with these different creatures then? The fish and the birds, are they meant to be different kinds of spirits or something? Yeah, meat puppets are sort of a country psychedelic punk rock. So there you go. That's a that's a thing you know now. But um, I do. Yeah, you, you do raise an interesting question. If we say the creatures in the sky and the waters are representative of different types of heavenly host, then we run into trouble because the types are not identified and we don't necessarily get a clean fit in our categories. For example, uh, we have to include the celestial beings from day four. So there we have the sun and the moon, which are unnamed and don't correlate with any particular angelic category. Uh, the stars we might align with the sons of God, the B'nai Ha Elohim from Job 38.7. But then if we do that, we have to ask why there are sea monsters in the sea already when the fall of the sons of God hasn't happened yet. Are they the same or different? Uh, we don't know. Uh, that leads us to ask about those sea creatures and what they are if they aren't fallen angels or watchers as per the Jewish understanding of the Babylonian mythology. And finally, the birds, which correlate best with the Israelite imagery describing unclean spirits. Well, we don't have any of those yet, according to the Enochic literature of the Second Temple period. So it can't be that if we apply the Enochic literature authoritatively across the board. If that stuff doesn't fit the model, then maybe it's all just literally stars and fish and birds. But that view fails to account for the function of the realms in which they dwell as spiritual planes of existence. The birds don't fly in heaven and the fish don't swim in hell. So if the cosmic geography is to be taken seriously, we need to interpret these creatures as inhabitants of those places. And that means we're talking about the text describing physical things while conveying a spiritual meaning. So how are we supposed to understand these different creatures and their place in God's world? Well, I'm going to suggest a different model for interpretation of these, uh, for, for differentiation of these creatures. Suppose we put them on a sliding scale and at one end we have God himself. God in this model represents the epitome of order. As we slide down the scale, we find the sun and the moon, then the stars, then the sea creatures, then the birds. We haven't talked about the land animals yet, but you could put them between fish and stars. And As we go along, each category gets further from order and increasingly chaotic in its nature. The tendency toward chaos is shown by the predictability of the movements of each thing. God defines order. He's unchanging and immovable, as we saw in our episode on Elohim. The sun and moon move, but they are very predictable. You see them every day. Stars and planets are less predictable because it takes centuries to document their movements. And of course, fish and birds are totally unpredictable except by their appetites. I'm not suggesting that such a scale was employed in any real sense, just like I'm not saying that anyone believed in literal dome cosmology either. You can talk about it in those terms without taking yourself literally. But it does make sense of the different entities by means of observable behaviour. And in this way, we might be able to identify different types of spiritual beings, which unfortunately takes us back to the same ontological difficulty we were having before. These creatures don't necessarily align clearly with known types. That is, unless we consider the possibility that Old Testament writers are dealing with a stage in the development of categories that didn't exist in any clear terms until later in history. So we're not completely sure how all this works, but there's a loose kind of structure and functionality going on in the spiritual realm that sort of mirrors the natural, and we haven't got it nailed down yet, but we're assuming God's got this and he's running the show. So in the meantime, 
While there's so much we haven't figured out, we're going to describe this stuff in ways we do understand. Why does the Old Testament specifically mention that Abram had to drive away birds of prey from the animals he cut up in the covenant ceremony? Why did Jonah get swallowed by fish when it was clear in the text that Jonah died and went to Sheol? Why did the morning stars sing at the creation according to Job 38? It's because in all these early texts and so many more, we have evidence of a slowly developing spiritual ontology. The Old Testament writers know that they're talking about some kind of spirit, but they talk in terms of fleshly creatures. They don't do much in the way of abstracts, especially in creative forms of writing as opposed to straight narrative. When we were reading the passage from Isaiah 34, back in episode 3 of the podcast, and talked about all those birds, they're not just birds. Same with fish. This is how they talk about spirits. And that's why you should never trust a whale in the King James Version. So what we have here in the exilic period, and therefore as you're arguing in the time when the primeval history took its ultimate form, is a situation where the author communicates to his audience using the terminology of their time. And in that Old Testament context, the material terms describe the immaterial to convey truth that relates to both of them. So what happens later then in Jewish history? Do things get clearer at a later stage? Well, it'd be nice if that were the case, wouldn't it? But uh, yes. later in the Second Temple period from the 5th century BC, which includes 1st century Jewish Christianity, the terms for the different spirits that define them uh, Sorry. The terms for the different spirits define them largely by their virtue. Angels versus demons and unclean spirits. You don't get the specificity of the Hebrew vocabulary because they're using the conventional Greek of the day, which was quite blasé about the whole thing, and we lost all that nuance and detail. In the early stage, material phenomena get used to describe these entities. I should probably stress, if this wasn't clear enough already, that this isn't animism. Animists have things like rocks and trees given souls like people have. Uh, that's not what's going on here. And the other kind of animism where you have some supreme power or force that makes everything happen and brings life and order to the universe, well, we don't have that either because God is a personal being with all the attributes of personhood and not some kind of energy or some impersonal force. You know, this isn't Star Wars and it isn't Eastern religion. Again, the text is revealing both a material and a cosmic reality existing in the same space described in the same language but it carries meaning on those two levels and there's actually a lot more going on as well but this is mind-bending enough for us modern evangelicals so we'll rein it in now fish may indeed have feelings sorry kurt but it's not the aim of the text to give us an overview of the sciences instead we're given a functional understanding of how the world works from the point of view of an ancient israelite the spirits are known by the job they do, and just like humans can have jobs that are nice or jobs that are nasty, spirits have jobs that help us categorise them. For example, messengers or malakim have good jobs, but a prosecutor or satan has a bad job. Taking it further and specific to the text of Genesis 1, let's consider the absence of moral terms to describe the spirits. Why is that? In the New Testament, spirits are good or evil, angels or demons. But here in Genesis 1, there is no vice or virtue. And that is why I suggested the order versus chaos ontology. This is a pre-fall situation. We have no evidence that any rebellion of any kind has yet occurred. So all these creatures that God just made are not in rebellion. They're not malevolent at this time. They haven't chosen 
any less than the best God has for them. They're simply carrying out their functions, and in those roles, some are more orderly than others. Later, after the series of rebellions that the primeval history lays out for us, and not until after the exilic period, the idea begins to form that some of these guys that have the bad jobs actually start to take some kind of sick pleasure in doing their nasty jobs, and that's when they cross over into what we might call moral evil. By the time we hit the New Testament, the terms have changed, and we're dealing with Greek now, and exclusively in the Judeo-Christian community, we get the Greek daimonion, used only of spirits that are morally bad, rather than using it as a generic term for a spirit that could have any moral orientation, or none at all, as the wider Greco-Roman world used the term. So angels are good and demons are bad, but you can only say that of New Testament and later Christian texts, not the Old Testament. The presence of something that represents demons in Genesis 1 shouldn't trouble us. The text affirms that the world in all its fullness functions according to divine will, and that is always true regardless of the development of the theology over time. The same can be said about other doctrines such as Trinity. Genesis 1 does not propose an origin of demons any more than it does of other material things or other Elohim. The presence of demons in God's good creation is accounted for in that all swarming creatures in ancient Near Eastern culture are consistently seen as the tool of the gods to accomplish the divine will. An example from my book is the Gutians or the Uman Manda, portrayed as a flock of sparrows. Another is the hornet in Deuteronomy and Joshua. There is no moral value, positive or negative, assigned to these creatures until later in the Second Temple and New Testament periods. But let's get back to our text, the birds and fishes. God blesses these creatures, all of them, together. They are the first to receive God's blessing. They were blessed before we were created. Their destiny was declared by God, and they were given freedom to roam and to live and to spread out over the earth. And God saw that it was good. And so ends the fifth day. So what about those unclean spirits from First Enoch? Well, as First Enoch explains, the unclean spirits are the result of the dead giants leaving behind these disembodied spirits. We don't get Nephilim until Genesis 6, so we can't expect to find the giants or their spirits in the world God is creating in Genesis 1. And that's reflected in the fact that everything in creation appears according to its kind, without mixture or hybridization. If the author of Genesis 1 had imagined unclean spirits in the story... They certainly would have appeared as monsters of some kind, like the monsters that appear in the Babylonian creation stories. And that's an example right there of the difference between the mythic history of Israel and that of the nations. In our God's creation, the monsters don't come about until much later. I can't wait to get into uh, some of that uh, monster stuff and the giants and all the weird stuff you talk about in uh, your book, Tim. So when are we going to get to talk about vampires and the lion-like men of Moab and zombies and killer hornets and all those B-grade monster stuff? That sounds awesome. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us in the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I'd love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Well, most of that doesn't appear in the primeval history, so it's not going to come into our study for a long, long time unless people want to send in their giant questions, and then we'll definitely go there. 
Speaking of, do we have some giant questions this week? We do have a couple of questions, uh, but I suspect it uh, won't take long to address these. The first one comes from Chris asking via Facebook, and Chris asks, wouldn't there be a little problem of the world being destroyed by a flood between the naming of the city Cain's descendant built, Eridu, you can tell me if I uh, pronounce that correctly, and the time of Nimrod? Yeah, okay. Thanks for your question, Chris. This is going to be a fairly quick one because I have already written about this in Answers to Giant Questions and I also alluded to it in an earlier episode of the podcast when I addressed another question about the remains of giants. Uh, Basically, in Genesis 4.17, the city built by Cain's son Enoch, which he named after his son Irad, is believed to be the same city known in ancient Mesopotamia as Eridu. Now, for those wondering how we got Eridu there when some Bibles say the city was called Enoch, uh, it's a grammar issue which someone decided to fix, and I'm doing air quotes, uh, by inserting the name Enoch at the end of the verse, but instead of making it less ambiguous, they just made it totally wrong. Uh, Enoch does not appear in the early sources at that point in the text. His name was just kind of shoved in there. So uh, when you take it out, uh, what you get is Enoch building a city and naming it after Irad. And that makes sense when we realize that Eridu really is a city from the earliest stage of Mesopotamian civilization, and nobody has ever found any evidence whatsoever of a city called Enoch. Anyway, that's just a rabbit trail. There's more on that in answers to joint questions if you're interested. But the real issue is that this stuff in Genesis 4 obviously precedes the Great Flood. So if the flood destroyed everything as we believe it did, how is it that modern scholars can say that the Tower of Babel was likely situated in the city of Eridu? Well, this is actually quite an easy problem to solve. Throughout Scripture, we see examples of destroyed cities being rebuilt. So in Job chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, in the ESV, it says, For then I would have lain down and been quiet, I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counsellors of the earth, who rebuilt ruins for themselves. The text of Genesis 8.13 is usually read like this. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark, and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the middle of the verse... It says the waters were dried up. So why does it repeat at the end that the face of the ground was dry? Well, you could actually translate that as the face of the ground was a desolate ruin. In other words, the scene before Noah's eyes wasn't some brand new garden paradise like Eden 2.0. It was the desolate ruins of the civilization that had just been wiped out in a cataclysmic deluge. So would it have been difficult to locate the ruins of Eridu? Not really. Thank you, Tim. That was fairly straightforward. And thank you, Chris, for that great question. We have another question for today. This one comes from Aaron, who asks about the significance of the number 12 in the second half of Mark chapter 5. Why the repeated use of the number 12 there? What does it mean in this context? Mm, Okay, so uh, firstly, yeah, great question. Thanks for that, Aaron. So I guess we'll start by reading the passage The parallel to Mark's gospel for this pericope is in Luke 8, 
Matthew omits it entirely, and John, well, he's doing John stuff. Since the question comes from a reading of Mark 5, that's the passage we're doing here. Uh, a little context. At the end of Mark 4, we had the storm on the sea, and Jesus calmed the storm. That leads into Mark 5, where Jesus meets Legion and delivers this man of 2,000 demons. Jesus returns to the western shore of the sea again, and our reading picks up when he arrives to find a man desperate to have his daughter healed. So I'm reading from the CSB. This is Mark 5:21 to the end of the chapter. When Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman, suffering from bleeding for twelve years, had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed for her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any more? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, Don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James and John, James's brother. They came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was twelve years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. All right, that's the end of the chapter. So when I started reading this, I was already thinking about what had come before, the tempest on the sea and the deliverance of the demoniac. And if you've read Answers to Giant Questions, you know what Mark does with those stories. He draws from heaps of Old Testament scriptures to tell his audience who this Jesus is. With the storm on the sea, Mark uses Job 1 and Psalm 89. In the story of Legion, Mark draws on Psalm 8, Nahum 1 and Isaiah 65. So the first thought I had when reading the rest of the chapter was, where is Mark getting this from? 
and the first thing that got my attention was the name of the synagogue leader, Jairus. Now, we're reading this from the Greek, of course, but that's a Hebrew name, and it has precedent in the Old Testament. There's more than one guy named Jair, or pronounced Yair, but the most important one is the guy named uh, Jair. I'm just going to say Yair who was a judge of Israel for 22 years and who took possession of the 60 cities of Og of Bashan in the region of Gilead. Or was that 30 cities? Or 23? That's right, there are potentially conflicting numbers given in different passages, and while you could do some interpretive gymnastics to try and sort them out, I'd advise against it for the sake of your sanity, and the reason for that is... Quite often, the numbers used in Scripture are chosen for their meaning rather than their face value. And we talked about that last week with the dates in the Torah. They uh, are chosen for other reasons necessarily than what you might get at face value. So anyway, we're tracking along with Mark, who has taken us deep into enemy territory already with his allusions to Leviathan in Mark 4 and his textual connections to Bashan in the first half of Mark 5. Continuing in chapter 5, the mention of Jairus keeps the Jewish mind in Bashan, formerly known as the land of the Rephaim, or giants, and specifically the region of Gilead, where these cities were. Gilead was known from early times and still today for a particular group of plants used in the manufacture of a kind of salve or balm. It was known for its healing properties and very valuable due to its rarity. It was a treasured commodity. In the Bible, it's known as the Balm of Gilead. The Balm of Gilead pops up in Scripture a few times. For the sake of time, we'll just look at the one Mark seems to be alluding to. This is Jeremiah 8, verses 19 to 22. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Before we go any further... Uh, contrary to the racist claims of black Hebrew Israelism, the phrase I am black in verse 21 is not a reference to the skin color of God. Okay, it's just not. It's, it's a reference to mourning. And as you might be aware, in that culture, it was common for people to put dust and ashes on themselves to signify their mourning, which naturally makes the skin dark. But I digress. Uh, did you notice some key words there as Jeremiah prophesied against Israel and predicted the exile in Babylon? Well, we had Gilead, the land of Yair. We had a physician, and Mark mentioned that the physicians who tried to treat the bleeding woman had been unable to heal her, but only made it worse. And we had a daughter, the daughter of my people, the children of Israel. Uh, and it's worth noting that both the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, and we take it that she's a mature adult, and the young girl are both referred to as daughter in Mark 5. Um, now, the balm of Gilead, incidentally, would have been of no use to the bleeding woman because the balm, according to 
Pedanius Dioscorides, a first century Greek physician, in his work entitled On Medical Material, actually increases menstrual flow for, cleans uh, for cleansing of the womb and could be used to induce abortion. So it wouldn't stop this woman's bleeding, it would make it worse. And that had been this lady's experience at the hands of the doctors she had seen at the expense of her livelihood. So along comes Jesus into this situation with a dead girl and a sick woman, having just come from a place famous for its healing medicine. And the medicine is no good for either of them. The girl is dead and the woman is trying to stop bleeding. And what about those numbers, the 12-year-old girl and the 12 years of bleeding? This is actually a very simple answer. 12 is the symbol of wholeness, fullness, completeness. It's why we have 12 tribes, 12 apostles, etc. These women were entirely and completely sick and beyond the power of human endeavor. And Jesus healed them both, making them whole and healthy. Now, what was that passage from Jeremiah saying? Rhetorical questions. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? That was the end of the passage. But earlier, is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Jesus is the healer. Jesus is the balm of Gilead. But not only that, Jesus is Yahweh. And he is the king in Zion. He can heal us. And in Jeremiah, sin is the disease when no one else can. You might have wondered what the connection to Jesus was if you ever heard the old Negro spiritual song, Balm and Gilead. Well, that was it. And no, I'm not going into black Hebrew Israelism again. Uh, incidentally, we should have gotten our first clue about wholeness and healing from the mention of Jairus because Yair had the 60 cities. And for a post-exile Jewish audience, they know Babylonian numerology. 60 has the same meaning as 12. Think about your analog clock. 60 or 5 times 12 is the number of wholeness. But the Rephaim, who were the former inhabitants of Bashan and the 60 cities, were not really healers at all. Like the Pharaoh's magicians competing with Moses, all they could do was make problems worse. So there you go. Mark has used the stories of these sick and dying women to reveal that Jesus is in fact Yahweh in the flesh, the second power in heaven made manifest by drawing on the rhetoric of Jeremiah, to illustrate the helplessness of Israel and their need for God to make them whole again. And not just Israel. When ethnic Israel gets scattered among the nations, they bring the Gentiles into themselves so the balm of Gilead can heal everyone. And in Revelation 22, verses 1 to 2, it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God in the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bore twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's powerful and very deep as always. Thank you, Tim. And that's all we have time for today. We'll do this again next week. What are we talking about next time, Tim? Well, next week we're going to finally address something we've actually been avoiding this whole time since we started the podcast we'll be studying the Hebrew word bara, which is usually translated as create. And we'll go into detail on what creation really is. So that's next time. And the following week, I have a special guest appearing on the show, our first guest interview. More about that next time. Don't go anywhere. Subscribe and share the show with your friends and family. And we'll catch you next week. 
It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. So, uh, yeah, all those people who sort of read the book of Jonah and they think yeah. it's like my people or something, you know, it's yeah, not like that. No. Yeah, that's the, uh, in every, like, illustration and illustrated mm. Bible and children's Bible, it's always... Oh, I mean... the kids' Bibles, aren't they the worst? Kids' Bibles <laughs> suck. You know, everything I say in this podcast is disturbing someone's Sunday school education. <laughs> They're glad yeah, I never make, went to Sunday school. Uh, I'm making little kids cry, honestly. <laughs>